There are fewer than 30 men in the world qualified to drive Formula One. A mere half dozen, perhaps, to win. At this moment, I'm inclined to think you're not one of them. Welcome to F1Weekly.com. My name is Clark Rogers. I'm the host of the program. I'll be joined by Nasser Hamid, my co-host. This is podcast number 1025, January 2nd, 2024. Nasser. Thank you, sir. I say Uncle Ken believed in six-wheelers, but no sex before the race. Gunther Steiner may be the alpha male of Drive to Survive, but not with Alfa Romeo. We shall explain very gladly. Now back to the base in San Jose. Thank you, Nasser. On today's program, Happy New Year to all the F1 Weekly Familia. Bonne année, bonne santé. We're off with some bad news, unfortunately. Gilles Deferrand, a wonderful career, Indy 500 winner, a super nice guy. And we'll bring that interview later on from the archives. Very, very sad indeed. Died at 56. NASCAR legend, Cale Yarborough. I mean, this guy had it all. Fantastic. Daytona. The whole package. And he was a nice guy as well. Dead at 84. Fernando Alonso purchases one of five Aston Martin... DTM cars. And this week's interview, like I just said, we're going to bring Gilles Deferrand from 2008. It's a very good interview. Nasser, of course, hits it out of the park. And this was recorded at Laguna Seca. And just a reminder, we do need your contributions to keep this program alive and available for free. So please, just click on the Support F1 Weekly tab. You know you want to. Nas, welcome to the studio. I know it's been a tough few days with people passing, but I know you cheered yourself up by going to see the Ferrari movie. Nas, welcome to the studio. How are you? I'm doing very good, sir. Thank you. And uh, it has been quiet on New Year's Day, but soon there will be thunder in Daytona and Saudi Arabia as we eagerly wait for the 24-hour race in the Dakar Rally. Now, Dakar remains in Senegal, but the rally has moved from the Atacama Desert in South America to the sand dunes of Saudi Arabia. And, sir, my uh, recovery continues, but I have now reached uh, back to the base in Tampa, FLA, so I'm enjoying the sunshine, and hopefully in the next uh, few, two, three weeks, I will be up to full speed. But we are totally committed to bringing... F1 Weekly podcast to the familiar every uh, week. So that's some good news. But like you said, we did get a double dose of very sad news. And this was impacted me quite a bit because both, both these gentlemen were very big names. And uh, first came the sad news from uh, Opa Loka last Friday. And I saw this on a, on Facebook in a, this was probably the first posting by some Brazilian person in Portuguese, but I could figure out what was going on. And actually, it took time for this to be picked up uh, by the media. But very sad, uh, just like the 1967 world champion, Denny Holm, the 2003 Indy 500 champion, Gilles de Ferran, as the name is known here, passed away from a heart attack while pursuing his passion at the private Florida track which is just north of Miami. Apparently, he was there with his son, Luke. And this really came as a shock as Gilles was only 56 years old. And that's much younger than you and I. And we're still kicking. You know what I'm saying? So that really was very, very sad. Like many of his fellow Brazilians uh, who became very successful in IndyCar racing, Gilles also raced in Europe. 
He was the 1992 British F3 champion with Paul Stewart Racing, which brought him into contact with Jackie Stewart. And his respect for JYS is evident in the interview we, we did with him a few years ago. After winning races in Formula 3000, which then became GP2, Gilles crossed the pond and surfaced to new, height, surfaced to new heights in IndyCar racing, taking back-to-back championships in 2000 and 2001. His day of days came in 2003 when he beat Compadre and teammate Elio Castroneves to win the big one at the Brickyard. It was a close finish, and had he allowed Elio to win that race, which you know racing drivers don't do that, Elio would be the only five-time Indy winner. Now, this was very interesting. This was the race in which the two Penske drivers were driving two different chassis. This is what I call Penske perfection meets Penske smartness. Gilles also holds the record for the fastest closed-circuit qualifying speed ever. Uh, driving for Penske, he lapped lapped the California Speedway in Fontana in October 2000 at 241.428 miles per hour. That's very, very fast. And now, you know, they are um, demolishing and reducing the length of the uh, Fontana Speedway, which is very, very bad. And this Speedway, by the way, was built by Roger Penske back in the days when he was also in uh, track ownership. Now, Roger said this on his passing, and this, this gentleman was just like, uh, uh, you know, Rick Mears uh, and Greg Moore, perfect Penske driver. Roger said, and I quote, We are terribly saddened to hear about today's tragic passing of Gilles de Ferran. Our thoughts and prayers go out to his wife, Angela, daughter Anna, and son Luke, and the entire de Ferran family. Gilles defined class as a driver and as a gentleman, end quote. And Mr. Rogers, your thoughts on this great racing talent and decent human being? Well, when I saw the news, I just couldn't believe it. Like you said, he was only 56. Race car drivers, even former race car drivers, stay in pretty good physical condition because they're still, they're still involved in karting and vintage car races. It, it was a stunner. I mean, I, I was blown away. I felt so sad for his entire familia. To end the year that way. So condolences to all. And uh, we'll keep remembering these people that we lose all the time here on F1 Weekly. Another one of those piece de resistance interviews. Of course, I'm talking about Gilles de Ferrand. I believe was done a couple of weeks ago at Laguna Seca. Nas, please introduce this motorsports legend. Well, uh, Gilles de Ferrand is a very successful and also very popular racing driver. He is originally, uh, he was actually born in uh, Paris. And because his dad was on a project there from Ford of uh, Brazil and uh, started racing in uh, karting, did a little bit of karting and racing in uh, native Brazil. And it's interesting in this conversation he talks about uh, before he came to Europe, he ran into Ayrton Senna because they had the same um, trainer. And it's very, very interesting what Senna advised him, what he should do. And I was very, very like, wow, that's some serious, serious advice to a racing driver. So that's very interesting. And then he raced in Europe, was very successful, and uh, then cut a deal with Jim Hall, a gentleman from Midland, Texas, to race Indy cars here. His first victory in the United States in Indy cars came at Laguna Seca, and that's where this conversation took place. And then he joined Penske. And I remember him saying when he joined Penske that just to be in a Penske racing suit is you know, basically the dream of any driver. And he won two championships with Roger and also the Indy 500. And that's the best you can do, you know, top of racing in America. Doesn't get any higher in Indy. <laughs> exactly. Then was involved with the Honda's Formula One program and now is running um, a team and also driving uh, in for Acura in the American Le Mans LMP2 series, LMP2 program, but now they're moving up to the top tier. So uh, it was very nice talking to him and um, very nice person. It was very nice to sit down and have a conversation with somebody as nice as he was and my thanks to his PR people also because this was pretty much arranged at the last minute so it's always very nice when people accommodate us so thank you and obrigado to Senor uh, Gilles de Ferran Okay folks I'm here at Laguna Seca with Gilles de Ferran. Uh, Gilles first of all thank you for your time and how are you today sir? Very well. Really happy to be back in uh, in Laguna Seca at you. It's uh, is a place that is uh, very dear to me. I mean, um, 
a variety of reasons, I guess. It's, um, first, I love being, uh, being uh, coming here. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the United States and, uh, and the world, I think, for that matter. I mean, it's, it's certainly a beautiful, uh, beautiful area, and it's, I don't know, it's, the sun is all shining. I always seem to be in a good mood when I'm here. But I think, um, you know, the, the track itself, Laguna Seca, is, uh, needs no introduction. I think it's, a, it's one of the finest racetracks uh, in America. And, and I guess the third and the final reason is this is where I won my very first uh, IndyCar race back in 1995. And, uh, you know, you've probably heard me say that before, but arguably one of the events that helped establish me as a, as a serious professional there at um, in the, uh, the highest level of uh, motorsports. Uh, you were born in Paris. Uh, how old were you when the family moved back to Brazil? Yeah, we moved uh, back to Brazil, I think I was like six months or something like that, you know, so very, very young. Um, I was born there a little bit by accident. Uh, you know, my, my dad, even though he's French also, but he grew up in Brazil. I mean, he's, he's a, uh, for all effects and purposes, a, a Brazilian guy. Uh, my mother is Brazilian, you know, they met over there. My dad went to school over there and all that. He was working in France for a year and a half. Ford sent him over there. Uh, to, to, to work on a project and then bring the project uh, to Brazil and I was born during that period. How long were you in karting and any karting competitors who were also racing with you back then when you were a kid who are now currently racing in the US? Well, uh, I, I did, unfortunately, did very little karting. You know, I started only when I was 14. You know, these days kids seem to start when they're like two or something like that. <laughs> And, uh, I, and I raced from only from 14 until 17. I was into Formula Fords uh, when I was uh, 17, uh, 17 years old. And yes, I mean, uh, I think the name you recognize, in my very first year of karting, I was racing against Rubens Barrichello and, uh, and Christian Fittipaldi. That was back in, uh, in 82. And, and they had already been racing for, they have already been uh, racing for a whole year uh, uh, before that. So... Uh, it was uh, those are funny days, you know. I mean, uh, it's, it's no Rubens uh, since '82. <laughs> you know, talking of Rubens, uh, I kid you not. There is also uh, the name is so famous. There is even a racehorse in America called Rubens Barrichello. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, Did you know that? It's, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, Mo, PK, and Senna, three great champions from your country. You were five years old when Mo won his first championship. What memories do you have of Mo becoming the first big Brazilian in international racing? Well, I, I think I have I have memories from the early 70s. I mean, I was only five or six, but I do remember, uh, you know, seeing him on TV um, driving the Lotus, you know, or maybe it's just a fantasy that I created in my mind, you know, I don't know. But and 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 also the McLaren uh, in the in the in the early in the early 70s, you know, I, I do have the memories of watching him uh, driving back then. Uh, PK, I think it will be end of this world before he says a kind word about Nigel Mansell. Your thoughts on the Rio racer? Nelson PK or Nigel? Uh, Nelson PK. Uh, I think, and uh, you know, you don't become a three-time world champion by accident. You know, I mean, um, uh, I think uh, on his day he was one of the finest, and um, I know he's not very popular with the press sometimes. You know. <laughs> And, uh, for that yeah, exactly. But, uh, but I, I really think that, uh, on, on his day, um, you know, uh, during his, his time as a professional, he was one of the best, you know, and, um, he was very, very clever, both, uh, I think with the car and, and also as a tactician. He really understood, um, my feeling was he really understood how to play a championship out. And uh, he had amazing nerves, actually, because I remember a few, uh, you know, championship fights that went down to the wire that he was uh, quite uh, spectacular. Yeah, two of his championships, I think, were won on the, in the final races. Yeah. PK Jr., do you think he will survive in Formula 1 next year? I really don't know. I mean, um, he's, um, he's had um, a tough uh, first year, you know. Um, obviously, he was struggling a little bit earlier in the, in the season. Now he seems to be getting uh, with um, getting on a little bit better, you know, and uh, 
It certainly seemed like a yeah, but you know, a bright, uh, up and coming uh, talent in the, in the lower formula, you know, both in formula he won in formula three, he won in GP two. It seems, as you think, seems to be a good prospect. Um, you know, it also seems to be improving. So, you know, whether he'll survive or not, I have no idea. But um, he probably deserves uh, another shot. Bruno Senna may have a seat at Honda or some other team next season. What will it mean for Brazilian racing to have the Senna name back in Formula One? I have to say, I'm not really a romantic about this uh, issue. <laughs> you know, to me, Ayrton Senna was one person, and he was magical, and uh, and I, I don't think I'll ever forget him. You know, I remember watching him drive, and um, and that was um, one of the most unbelievable experiences. You know, like. Mm. Well, I'll try to do that, <laughs> you know, when I'm in the car. And and I see Bruno, I know he carries the same last name and all that, but he has to make his own mark. To me, he has, he has no connection. It means nothing. Um, did you get to know Ayrton Senna a little bit personally or any memories you can share with us? No, I did. And, um, you know, I, I remember one of the, the main, one of the interesting things I, I remember about Ayrton uh, is um, when I was... I was Brazilian Formula 4 champion in 1987, you know, and uh, that was a long time ago, Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, and I was thinking about going to England, and uh, he was trying to give me, you know, I, I met him when I was karting and all that, and I, was, I went, uh, talked to him, and we had the same trainer, and went training together once. I mean, he was training a lot faster than I was, but, you know, we were together in the same training facility. <laughs> And uh, I said, what do you think? You know, I'm thinking about doing this. And he said, you know, you need to find an opportunity with a team where the responsibilities or the larger majority of the responsibility to get a good result is on your shoulders. And that, that somehow that really hit home, you know, and I, and, I, and I understood what he was talking about, you know, that... Uh, you know that uh, as a as as a driver, you need to put yourself in a in a situation um, wh where you have the best support, the best team, the best equipment, and so on and so forth. But then you still have to perform, and there's a um, you want to put yourself in that situation where all the responsibility is finally yours. And uh, I, I carried that with me all the way to the end of my career. You know, uh, people used to ask me when I joined Pinsky, oh, do you feel pressure and all this? And and I said, you know, I worked all my life to be in this situation where most of the responsibility now lies with me. And uh, so why should I feel bad about that? <laughs> you were British Formula 3 champion in 1992 with Paul Stewart Racing. What were the highs and lows of the season? The highs, uh, there was a lot of highs. <laughs> I won a lot of races that year. You know, uh, we had some uh, some great uh, some great wins. I think um, the lows was uh, really we lost uh, we lost a colleague uh, that year. Uh, was uh, Marcel Albers, uh, who was a championship contender as well. Uh, he passed away, I think, on round three or four uh, in an accident in in trucks, and, and that was that was very tragic. Now, you mentioned this, uh, Marcel Albers. Uh, you know, when you're young and you lose a colleague like that, what does that do to a driver? Um, did you have any thoughts of not going forward, or how do you put this thing behind you? With great difficulty, <laughs> you know, with, uh, with great difficulty. And I think the only thing that helps you in a situation like this is your attitude towards risk prior to the accident. I cannot speak for others, but I think in my case, I always accept the fact that every time I put the helmet on and I strap myself in the car, I may lose my life doing what I love doing. Hopefully it won't happen, you know, that's not the, uh, uh, the intent, but I accept the fact that that may happen at any time, being at a race, a practice session, test session, qualifying, whatever. I know that risk exists, and I accept that risk before I, I, I uh, put myself in that position. With Paul Stewart Racing, you also did Formula 3000 in 1993 and 94, both occasions finishing in the top five. How different is the talent pool when you move from Formula 3 to Formula 3000, and what were the important events for you in this series? Uh, I think 
not only going from Formula 3 to Formula 3000, but I think as you move up in the categories, you know, then up to IndyCar or to Formula 1 and so on and so forth, basically in 90% of the cases, you know, you only move up because you deserve to move up. So the talent pool gets more and more concentrated. <laughs> and um, you end up with uh, a great number of... Uh, excellent a greater number of uh, excellent drivers the higher you move up the ladder and that's certainly the case uh, when you join in the cars of formula one or even the the, the highest uh, uh, steps of, uh, of of motorsports now jackie stewart has always been very good with sponsors uh, even to this day now let me ask you the, uh, this question if jackie stewart had asked you to wear a scottish kill for a sponsor would you have done that I would have done that even if it, even if it wasn't for a sponsor, you know. <laughs> I think Jackie, uh, has, he has been a great friend and supporter uh, uh, throughout my life. And, uh, you know, if Jackie asked me to go to Alaska for him, I would have done that also. Okay, great. Um, for 1995, you made a career move from England to Midland, Texas with Jim Hall Racing. Uh, can you tell us how this deal came about, please? Yeah, well, basically I was leading the Formula 3000 Championship in the early and middle 94 actually I led the championship in 94 for most of the year and I had established uh, contact with uh, Jim back in 93 and um, middle 94 he called me up and invited me for a test and um, the test went quite well if I recall I think I broke the lap record there that little track um, in in Texas that, that we run he offered me a contract uh, a few months later <laughs> uh, so basically before the Formula 3000 season was over I had already a deal done uh, to come over here and it was done on purpose because Jim wanted to for me to do as much testing as possible prior to the beginning of the 1995 uh, season Now Sebastian Vettel recently had said a few times that I don't need a manager because I can get to the track on, on my own uh, who was guiding your career when you were in junior Formula and um, do you think a talented driver needs a manager I was I never had a manager you know I had people that I went for advice and there were different people for different occasions and for different situations most of them were my friends but I also had professional uh, advisors but I never really had a manager per se I think this is really uh, a question of horses for courses you know uh, everybody's a little bit different and I think it's important for each one to to know themselves well and understand what makes them tick you know and and understand how to get the best out of you and uh, some people need more support than others others I think thrive by getting a greater understanding of what's going on around them others don't want to know it's all it's you know it's all different when you signed with uh, Jim Hall uh, many months before the season started here, were there any offers or possibilities to get a, some sort of a role with the Formula One team? Back in, in the early 90s? Yeah, before you came to the U.S. Yeah, I mean, that was in the, in the conversations uh, with F1 teams. I tested uh, footwork, I believe it was 93. I tested Williams in 92. I drove a McLaren in 94 just for a film uh, to help them do a film. And I was in serious conversations with a, with a few teams. And even throughout my IndyCar career, I had some uh, serious approaches. But uh, I think for one reason or another, you know, I think uh, sometimes was I thought I had a better opportunity over here. Other times uh, the timing just wasn't right and or I was not available. I was in the middle of a contract. It never really worked out. How big and tough was the adjustment to oval racing once you got here? Ah, Theo, that was a very steep learning curve. You know, I had a lot, um, had a, a lot that I needed to learn. You know, and ovals are uh, not an easy. <laughs> they're not an easy thing for you to to understand. Uh, you already has addressed this issue. Uh, your first IndyCar win came here in the last race of the season at Laguna Seca. How important was that win and being Rookie of the Year title to your career? I think very important. Eh? You know, in the end of the day. You know, the proof is in the pudding, you know. I mean, I was running well that whole year, you know. I was, um, I, I think I scored a couple of pole positions, you know. Uh, I led races, you know, right from the beginning of the year. But, you know, proof is in the pudding. So, um, you know, a win's a win. <laughs> yeah. 
1999 at Portland, you won your first race with Walker Racing over Montoya. Among all the drivers you have raced against, how will you rate Monty? I think he's one of the best. Uh, certainly one of the best. A unique talent. You know, his car control and his ability to drive in cold tires and, and uh, slippery conditions are second to none. And he was a formidable uh, opponent. I was feel privileged, uh, I should say, that I was able to, to go against him. In your first two years with Penske Racing, you won the car championship on both occasions. Uh, what's the Penske organization like and which championship meant more to you? I, you know, I mean, championships are like kids. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to have a favorite, and I actually don't, you know. And, um, you know, there's certainly, uh, there are very fond memories. You know, I mean, the Penske Racing, uh, Penske Racing is everything that you hear about and a bit more, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a very professional organization, but what, what it probably doesn't come across from the, from the outside is that it's a very friendly organization as well. Your victory in the 2003 Indy 500 came at the expense of your teammate and fellow countryman Castro Neves, who was going for three in a row. Uh, describe the joy of winning the biggest race in the world, and what did Elio say to you after the race? Well, you know, we have a running joke that uh, he, I have uh, his third Indy 500 ring, and I tell him he has my first. <laughs> you know, but uh, I think, uh, joking aside, I mean, uh, it was... Um, you know, it was a happy day for uh, for the team. You know, Osley's rose reversed a few years before, and uh, and I think he understood that, and and he was happy for me, and, and that really came across. Of course, he was disappointed not to have won, but uh, we had such a great team atmosphere that it was all good. Uh, what was your role and responsibility in the Honda F1 team, and were you responsible for bringing Rubens Barrichello on board? Well, you know, I was uh, responsible for all trackside operation and everything to do with with, with uh, the racing part. You know, if you can understand, in a, in, a, in a Formula One team, you design, manufacture, and race cars. You know, design, manufacture, it was under the technical director. Race the cars, it was part of uh, all, all the so under that big umbrella was my responsibility, including um, help negotiate driver driver uh, contracts. You know, did I do that all on my own? No, you know, but uh, it was a big part of one of my responsibilities. You are back in the USA racing in American Le Mans with Acura. Was this per request of Honda Racing that you come and start your own team, or something you came up with the idea? It was a it's a situation where uh, you know opportunity meets desire. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I always had a good relationship with Honda. You know, I, I knew of their desire or their plans to expand uh, the program. You know, we started talking about it and uh, it's something that I found very appealing. Acura is moving up to LMP1 next year. What is the goal for your team and who will be the drivers apart from you? Well, you know, we'll, we'll make a full announcement about the drivers and sponsors and so on and so forth in, in, in due course. You mean F1 Weekly cannot get a scoop? No scoop. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have a hard time just setting uh, goals, you know, I, I, because I think it's, it's inherent, inherent and to, to the fact that, you know, when you strap yourself in there, it's for one reason only, is to win races, you know. Now we got recognized, we got uh, tough competition and, uh, you know, that we're a young team and so on and so forth, but I can't help myself. Formula One season ends in your country next month. Uh, I would like to get your thoughts as a driver, penalties that were given on uh, Hamilton at Spa and in Japan. I think, um, you know, in Spa, uh, I, I didn't see anything wrong with what he did. I have to say, but uh, I guess I'm not a steward and I, I don't have all the data in front of me. But from what I was able to observe in the, um, what I was able to observe in the TV, I, I, I didn't feel that penalty was justified. In Japan, yeah, it did look like he overcooked it a little bit. <laughs> now, last year there was an intense rivalry between Alonso and Hamilton. Um, what was your feeling be between the two? Um, what could have been done different by Alonso or the team uh, so this thing does not get out of control? Well, I think rivalries in the sport are, are a good thing, not a bad thing. You know, you need, um, 
you need strong competition even if it's within the team you know uh, I don't believe in the philosophy that a teammate is there just to support the other um, because I don't think that that's what the fans want you know the fans want to see wants to see racing you know I wasn't privy to what was going on on the inside and so on and so forth but I think you know you want, you want to see guys racing hard on the racetrack at all the time whether they drive for the same team or not between Massa and Hamilton who do you think will be a worthy world champion I think both of them will be a very worthy champion you know uh, they both uh, driven great championships and uh, you know they both uh, drove some uh, brilliant races they both had bad luck um, and they both made them made them their mistakes um, I think they they, they would equally deserve to be champions finally how about a message for listeners of F1 weekly please well that was an interesting interview so if all the interviews are like this uh, you got some good things to listen to thank you very much obrigado Yes, sir. And um, also, unfortunately, we lost Cale Yarbrough, one of the greats of stock car racing. He was the first NASCAR driver to win three championships in a row, 1976 to 1978. And believe it or not, Mr. Rogers, I was following even NASCAR back in those days, and I remember this. And he won the Daytona 500 four times. NASCAR, and you know, when I drive to uh, D.C. from Florida, which I've done a few times and may be doing again soon, I, when I'm passing through uh, South Carolina, I see a signed Cale Yarbrough Museum. And now that I have time on hand, hopefully I can stop by and check out his museum. NASCAR chairman and CEO Jim Friend said, and I quote, Cale Yarbrough was one of the toughest competitors NASCAR has ever seen. His combination of talent, grit, and determination separated Cale from his peers, both on the track and in the record book. He was respected and admired by competitors and fans alike, and was as comfortable behind the wheel of a tractor as he was behind the wheel of a stock car." And speaking of uh, what he owned and uh, did, Cale owned a farm and Honda dealership in his native South Carolina. And you know, it is interesting, uh, he, he is uh, one of three people really responsible for exploding NASCAR on the American scene. Uh, the, I believe it was the 1973 Daytona 500, which was the first race to be televised live. And he, in the late stages, got into a, t- a tangle on the track with, I believe it was Donnie Allison. And then they got out of that car and got into a fist fight and... Donnie's brother, Bobby Ellison, got involved, and this was all on live TV. And you know how much uh, fighting the NASCAR crowd loves. So this really made the series very, very popular. I was ready for the big time. So uh, I had some friends that went around the country and went around the community raising money and bought a brand-new 57 Pontiac and turned it into a race car and uh, put me in the Southern 500 in Darlington. Well, I got my NASCAR license, but by the time race race day came, uh, uh, some way uh, the NASCAR officials found out that I was only 17 years old. They told me I couldn't drive the car, but I slipped in it anyway, and Johnny Bruno was the, was the chief steward then, and uh, when the race started, he saw I was out there, and uh, so he black flagged me and brought me in. He says, you're just too young, so you can't drive that race car, but... That didn't stop me. I, I beat Johnny back to the pits, I think, and uh, so we finally had some mechanical problems. It was a rude awakening for Kale attempting to drive in his first Southern 500, but he was determined to make it. After supporting his family with various odd jobs, Kale would move to the sports hotbed of Charlotte to try and capitalize on any opportunities. Uh, cutting pulp wood and uh, uh, got into the turkey business, and uh, then of course Betty Joe and I got married, and. Uh, and I was playing semi-pro football and just anything I could do to, to make a living and, and racing too. And uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't long after that before Ford came along, you know, and, and, and showed some interest. And uh, then, uh, uh, then I moved to Charlotte and so I could be close to it. Went to work for Holman & Moody, dollar and a quarter an hour, sweeping the floor at the Holman & Moody shop so I could be there if something happened, just like I had done at the racetracks. Put me in, here I am, you know, and it, it paid off. And at one time, you know, after retiring, he also owned an NASCAR team. I remember his car was sponsored by RCA. 
So another of those great names, Mr. Rogers, that seems to be now regularly passing away. And we certainly will remember and our condolences to both the families. As they say in racing, the show must go on. Over the weekend, I watched a couple of shows. I finally got the chance to watch the FIA prize-giving ceremonies from Baku. Machismo was MIA, but he sent a very trifle-polite video sharing his... The award he got was something like Action Moment Award from Interlagos with Sergio Perez. Do I have the name correct, sir? Yeah, the, I think the term action is definitely in the award, so... Yeah, and that was for keeping the Red Bull driver just barely behind him at the finish. I think um, Machismo is now a kinder, gentler warrior, but put him or any other top-line driver in today's Red Bull and true colors will come out tomorrow. And that is the nature of the beast called Formula One Grand Prix Motor Racing. And we love it. And Mr. Rogers, I don't know if I asked you about your... How did you like the presentation? Oh, of the action, the video and all that? Yeah, the whole thing. It was okay. I mean, you're always disappointed when you don't see Fernando live. But for me, I thought it was it was fine. He's pumped up. He's a busy guy, you know, camping chairs, Aston Martins. He's like James Bond, really. Yeah, very true. Okay, sir, moving on. Then we come to Ferrari, the movie. A thousand miles of open road through towns and villages faced ace drivers in Italy's famous Mille Miglia car race. Tragedy and death waited as the Maggi de Portago, number 531, sped towards his doom. Leading the Ferrari team in car number 534, Peter Collins of Britain was always contesting the lead. Speeding cars are always a thrilling spectacle, and these crowds had little thought of danger as the cars sped by at speeds well over 100 miles an hour. In Rome, film star Linda Christian waited anxiously for her driver friend, the Marquis de Partago. And with a good luck kiss, Linda sent him speeding on his way. He was then in third place. Then came a burst tire and disaster. Here, a broken telegraph pole marked the scene of tragedy, together with wreckage and tattered clothing. In its crazy flight, the blood-red Ferrari crashed into spectators on both sides of the road. Nine people were killed, five of them children. Nicely done with beautiful aerial shots of Italian countryside and fantastic videos of red cars, racing and testing. Not to complain, and I don't want to talk too much about this for those who have not seen the movie, but just want to say that the movie covers only the 1957 season. But there is a very good coverage of its private and family life. As a passionate fan of Formula One and Grand Prix history, like yourself, Mr. Rogers, and many of our listeners, um, in my case for over half a century, when you hear names like Warzi, Castellotti, Collins, Hawthorne, Bera, Kitty, Monza, and Mele Emilia, it does something to you. Did you enjoy the movie? Yes, sir. I did. I did text you after I saw the Ferrari film. I enjoyed it, even though I know there are a lot of inaccuracies from the Ford concept to the way they were racing in Mille Miglia, because in that race, you're really not knocking cars off the road. You're racing against the clock. But it's a great, 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 great film. I, I, the cinematography is wonderful. The The accidents are a little gory. They actually filmed... The accident that the 57 Mille Media is famous for in front of the original house and everything. Everything was very, very correct. So, and it was uh, very well done. I enjoyed it. I mean, there's a lot of gratuitous, almost cliche sex scenes. But besides that, I thought it was great. Yeah, well, you know, it's all part and parcel of uh, any racing driver or sport, uh, high high-level sportsman's life, uh, just ask, uh, I mean, I don't want to take some names here, but we know what we're talking about here. A lot of people have gotten trouble with these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed, you know, just these names, Maserati, and uh, just, uh, it just, it's just so beautiful. That was very nice, especially when you're hearing the names and there's a person 
person representing that driver there and you really get into the moment. There was a little frisson for sure there. You know, my ex-boss, uh, she's of Italian heritage, she sent me a text message that she's going to go. She also lives here in Tampa, that she's going to go and see the Ferrari movie and wanted to ask me how it was. So I said, no, I want you to watch it. I don't want to spoil it for you. And then we can discuss. So it's, yeah, the photography is very good. And always with movies, there's going to be some, what David Letterman used to call a writer's embellishment. That's uh, understood. But it's still very well done. I do like the conversation he has with his wife. It's very, very chilling. And a lot of it is true because, you know, when uh, Carlo Kitty, who's in that movie, and Phil Hill, they left Ferrari shortly after winning the championship. One of the problem was Mrs. Ferrari was involved in a lot of things, so they couldn't handle it. But, uh, you know, it'll be nice to hear if uh, people, one of some of our listeners who watch this, what their feedback are, and would would like to share that on on the podcast. That's a great idea, Nasser. Let's encourage people who've seen the film, email us your review, and we'll read it on the podcast. And I have to admit, I thought Penelope Cruz really nailed it. Yeah, no, this was uh, very nicely done. I was impressed, I have to say. Again, it was like, you know, for me, now that I've seen it, it was like for me going to the Ferrari Museum last year, they only had Formula One cars from a certain era, and then the guy told me that's what they do every year. And he told me that uh, they do, it, it changes in September. Maybe this year, now that it's 2024, maybe I can go there. And He said you can always go to, to the website, to the museum website, and see what cars are on display. Now, man, if they have cars from uh, 60s and 70s this year, I'll go. I'll find a way to get there and... Uh, because I want to see those cars, you know, the Jackie X car, Lorenzo Bandini type cars, you know, 74, 75 Ferraris, the uh, 78 312 T3 is one of my all-time favorite cars. So that's a lot of beauty there. Okay, sir, knighthood for Ron Dennis. In His Majesty's New Year's Honors List, the ex-McLaren boss man gets knighthood for his services to industry and charity. He is chairman and founder of Podium Analytics which works with sports stars to help reduce injury. And I think he's also involved with some some group that helps the British uh, defense industry. So, uh, you know, he's in his 70s now. He's keeping himself busy. I would love to find a way to see if I can get some time with to do an interview with him, which would be so fantastic, you know. But it's not easy getting to, to that level of people, if you know what I mean. And Mr. Christian Honor was also awarded... Uh, uh, and also I hear Lewis Hamilton, I did not read the whole thing, but LCH also got some recognition, right? Yes, uh, the Compton City Commerce had an award for him. Oh, really? Indeed. Not Coventry in England, but Compton in USA? Exactly, sir. You know what I'm talking about. Lowriders, what's up? Bo Chizzle, my nizzle. Very good. Okay, get ready for some hate mail again now. Okay, uh, speaking of Lewis Hamilton, uh, looks like he's not only lucky on the track, he may be lucky in love now. Apparently, he has rekindled his uh, old flame, and I think she's some Brazilian model, and they were some at some party. So we wish him well, and I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to Mercedes giving him a competitive car so he can do his shizzle or nizzle with, uh, with Max. And I want to see a repeat of the... 2021 Brazilian Grand Prix, sir. Do you remember? Yeah, so you want more shizzle than nizzle. I understand. But yeah, as a matter of fact, I heard Kanye West was involved in getting these two lovebirds together. Very good, very good. At least he's doing something positive. Okay, now, no, I don't know anything about Kanye West, so I'm I'm just, you know, blowing off here. Anyway, next we come to Swiss timing. Robert Benoit is a very experienced and well-respected Swiss F1 journalist. In an interview with Blake Publication, uh, he talks about what it was like driving for Ken Tyrrell. And you know, this, these are the stories that I really, really enjoy when I read information from people like him, Joe Saver, uh, Mark Hughes. I mean, just, you know, from the deep bowel of the motor racing archives. So the team, uh, Tyrrell team, is famous for taking Jackie Stewart to three world championships and singing a winning Swedish Rhapsody on six fields with South African Jody Schechter, or as 
Ari Lewandijk would say Schechter, which probably is the correct pronunciation of this name anyway. Uh, Benoit is quoted as saying, I once sat at the dinner table at Enderstorf with Martin Brundle, who drove for Tyrell at the start of his career. At 10 p.m. sharp, Tyrell came over to us and told Brundle he had to go to bed. End quote. Other instructions to his drivers included no monkey business in bed the night before the Grand Prix. No wonder James Hunt never drove for him. So what do you remember most about Ken Tyrrell and his team? And I'm going to tell you one thing. When I was at Monza in 1982, after the race, when all the Tifosis go on the track, that day I was one of them. And I was pushing and going on, and I turned around, and there's this tall guy in a blue shirt saying, Elf and uh, Tyrrell. And I look up, and I was like, basically, not face-to-face, but face-to-tummy with Ken Tyrrell. What do you remember most about his team? Well, he was an old-fashioned guy, but very fatherly in terms of protecting everybody and making sure that everybody was ready for the Grand Prix. And in those days, they said that to boxers, never have sex before a fight. So he just took it to heart that every little, little nook is covered, sort of like Fernando. Fernando comes into every conversation. Oh, that's very interesting. Gracias. Yes, and Ken Tyrrell's son uh, used to be a pilot for British Airways. I don't know if he is still flying or retired, but that was the story. Okay, sir, hasta la vista to Haas F1. According to a report by GMM News Agency, and this news agency supplies racing stories to a lot of websites, Alfa Romeo CEO Jean-Philippe Imperataro said thanks, but no thanks to stay in Formula 1 with another team. He said, and I quote, Did we want to repeat an experience under the same conditions by being a sponsor of a team for about twice the price? That team, as was rumored throughout the season, was Haas F1. It's amazing that Gene Haas and Gunther Steiner would be asking twice the amount that Alfa Romeo was paying to Sauber. The Alfa CEO is now interested in doing Le Mans and WEG. What will be very cool, I think, and it will save Alfa Romeo a lot of money, if they can use the Ferrari WEC car in American IMSA competition, the, the Lara Bill car has already won Le Mans in its first outing last year, which was very impressive. A red car running high on the Daytona banking and coming down at Corkscrew at Laguna Seca would be super bellissimo. Or they can have an Alfa Romeo badge Ferrari built IndyCar engine. Last time they were in IndyCar racing, their first few years were on par with GP2 engine. And this was after the all-conquering Chevy engine was shipped secretly, absolutely and positively, to their base in Milano by a Patrick racing team. And that was the beginning of the end of Patrick's wildcat days. Despite all this, I remain a huge fan of Alfa Romeo Racing Heritage and absolutely love their logo. How can you not love a brand that had... Tazio Novolari as a driver and Enzo Ferrari as team manager. And sir, speaking of uh, Alfa Romeo and IndyCar racing, their car was sponsored by, uh, I believe it was uh, Miller, yeah, Miller Lite, I believe. And that car, March, it's a March car with Alfa Romeo engine, uh, can be seen at the Alfa Romeo Museum in Arese, which is just north of uh, Milano. And that's another museum I would like to go. You know what they have in that car? Apart from the uh, 57 Maserati 250 winning the German Grand Prix, the 1935 Italian Grand Prix is very famous because Stazio Novolari won in an Alfa Romeo, beating more powerful German cars. And that car is in that museum. So it's, uh, and it, they also have the very first car that Fiat built in 1899. So this is pretty impressive. And sir, you love vintage cars. Any room in your Escargo Corazon for Alfa Romeo's 1750 two-door coupe or the World Championship winning T33 sports car with Campari sponsorship? And that's what I'm talking about, sir. No, I love Alphas. I mean, a friend of mine's got a 69 Duetto. It's, it's an awesome little car. I hang out with Alphas. You know, I'm just stuck with Renaults and Citroën. But it's still fun. I love all cars. I'm not a car racist, Nasser. Oh, you're just a people racist. <laughs> nice to know that. That was a joke. That was a joke, okay? Now we come to Le Mans winning Formula One world champions. Once upon a time, Grand Prix drivers used to race in Formula Two, Indy 500, and Le Mans. 
and in Tasman cities way down in Australia and New Zealand. Things and times have changed till a hero from Oviedo comes along. We shall explain muy gladly. This, this hombre is in every conversation we have. The first British world champion, Mike Hawthorne, was also the first world champion to win the Le Mans 24-hour race. This was in the tragic 1955 event. He shared the winning Jaguar with Ivor Boer. The second world champion to win the French Classic was Austrian driver and childhood friend of Dr. Marco, Jochen Rind. He won the race in 1965 with American co-driver Meston Gregory. This car is now at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum, which is currently closed till 2025 for massive remodeling, also known as Perfection, Penske Perfection. I think this museum is going to be, it was already awesome, but it looked like an old place. But once it's reopened in 2025, I think it's going to be like one of the best museums in the world. Man from Santa Monica, Phil Hill, was the first American world champion in 1961. He won at Le Mans three times, 58, 61, and 62, each time uh, driving a Ferrari with the same co-driver from Belgium, Olivier Jean Debienne, and Olivier Jean Debienne is also in the movie Ferrari. Graham Hill, Damon's daddy, was a character and apparently took detailed notes of any changes made to his car. His attention to detail paid off, making him the only driver to win in Monte Carlo, the brickyard, and the Le Mans 24 hour in 1972, sharing a blue Matra with Pesca, aka Henri Pescarola. You know, he's up there in age also, and, uh, I, and that's, that name and Rene Arno for me will always be very, very important. It was the coverage of the 1973 Le Mans 24 hour on BBC World Service that when the cars went by and the man said Matra Ferrari Matra and the sound of those V12s anything and everything when I heard that man anything and everything else in this world evaporated instantly and to go and do an interview with him some years ago at Le Mans that was very very nice we're, we're going to go ahead and repeat that interview on next week's podcast because it is such a good one Thank you, sir. Okay, next, all rise as we come to Machismo at Mulsanne. Fernando Alonso, the third championship in F1, remains a dream fading fast in his 40s. But thanks to his association from his Michelin days with Toyota team boss, Pascal Vassilon, Alonso has back-to-back -back victories at Le Mans. According to him, he really wants to win the Dakar Rally. Let's hope we see him at the Cracker Barrel, which is right across the Daytona Speedway one fine day after winning the 500 in his Camry or Pitchin Camaro. Would you like to see him in NASCAR also, sir? Absolutely. NASCAR is competitive, and now that the cars are more hip and somewhat better handling, I think Fernando would love it, especially with some freak Cracker Barrel on the side. Who would sponsor Fernando in NASCAR. Who could be a great Spanish sponsor? Well, it could be Telefonica, the phone company, or Santander. And uh, on the American side, you know, I have a good sponsor for him on the American side. Clorox or Comet Bleach? I was thinking of Taco Bell. Yo te quiero, run for the border. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, something like that would be good. Okay, so now we come to part two of Bust a Move where we talk about drivers who thought, you know, they were bigger than the sport and they're going to kick the team that brought them championship and be the next Michael Schumacher. So let's take a look here. JV to Barr in 1999. His manager, Craig Pollock, must have found something special in the Scottish Highlands when he declared Barr Honda will win on debut with their Reynard-built car. You remember that? Oh, I remember that. And I was excited. I was a Villeneuve fan. I'm going, if this is true, we could get another championship. We could have some more excitement. Yes. Now, that was the reputation of the other English Adrian. Adrian Reynard, that is. Because his car had won every race they had entered uh, on debut till they got to the real world. But this Adrian, instead of riding to success like his Red Bull namesake, had to experience a supersized humble pie at Red Robin. Leaving a championship-winning team for a new project headed by a ski instructor left JV's career in a serious downhill. 
but his payday was up, up and away as JV was also part owner of the team, which had a funding of close to half a billion dollars per season. Talk about lucky strike. Next we come to Il Leone, roaring back to Formula One after his American adventure. For the Williams team, racing drivers are like light bulbs, easy to replace. Take one out, put new one in, and that has worked well for them. Mansell's fuse went off when the team would not meet his financial demands, despite the Birmingham-born driver delivering championship to the team. Do you remember the press conference where he announced that he was leaving? And the, and the team handed a note that they have met his demands during the press conference? Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty funny stuff. Classic. After the Imola tragedy, Williams brought Mansell back. The season finale in Adelaide saw Michael Schumacher win his first championship and Arnage took his final F1 victory. For 1995, Frank dumped Mansell for DC. Ron Dennis hired the 1992 world champion, but the new Marlboro man would not fit in the new McLaren. After missing the opening two races, as he could not fit in the cockpit, Mansell said, Adios to racing after the Spanish Grand Prix. But do you think the combo of Mansell and Ron Dennis would have worked out? <laughs> Not in a million years. It would have been explosions. He would Ron Dennis would have given him a Peugeot out of spite. Yeah. And then we come to Jean Alessi, new motivation powered by a prancing horse. The ace of Avignon made a big impression at Team Terrell. He was much in demand and had agreed to drive for Frank Williams in 1991. If only they were selling crystal balls in France at that time. When Ferrari came calling, Alessi's Italian blood was running fast in his Sicilian veins. Not surprisingly, Frank played hardball with the Italians and received a Ferrari as part of a package to release Alessi from his contract. In the five years he drove for Ferrari, Alessi famously won only one race on his birthday in Montreal in 1995. In the same time frame, Mansell and Prost became world champions with Williams. Now, if you are wondering if Willie Weber helped Alessi in his contract negotiation, the answer is no. His advisor was Nelson Piquet Sr. I'm not saying that Nelson told him to go to Ferrari, but he had sought the help of Nelson Piquet to sort out all the contract negotiations. It's amazing how different life can be for a driver. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. Yeah, because, you know, it was like the Michael Schumacher situation in 2006. From what I've heard, Ferrari wanted to keep him and have him as teammate to Raikkonen, and they could only do that when they took out that clause in his contract that he would have right of veto on his teammate, and Michael decided to retire. And, you know, as, as things turned out, had he stayed, he probably would have won the championship in 2007. But that's the way it goes. Now we come to Emerson Fittipaldi. No sweetness despite the sugar sponsorship. The Brazilian rocket man became the youngest world champion at the age of 25 in 1972 with Lotus. Pissed off at Colin Chapman for not giving the agreed pre-race slow signal to Ronnie Peterson, during the 1973 Italian Grand Prix, allowing Emo to keep his championship hopes alive, he signed with Teddy Mayer and regained his title driving for McLaren, becoming the first McLaren world champion in 1974, and finished runner-up in 75 to Niki Lauda, but then dropped a bombshell for 1976. He was leaving for brother Wilson's Copersucar outfit, and Copersucar is the Brazilian sugar cooperative, which is like... Max leaving Red Bull today for Yoss first up in racing, uh, sponsored by Heineken or Philips. He picked up a second place at the 1978 Brazilian Grand Prix, but results were scarce and his F1 career faded out. And Fittipaldi has gone on record saying this was the biggest mistake of his life, but he would cross the pond like Christopher Columbus and discovered a lot of success in winning the Indy uh, Car Championship in 1989 and also the big prize at the Brickyard in 1989 and 1993. Any comments on these things, Mr. Rogers? All very, very exciting. This is just a little more fruit on top of the salad, and I love it. Great. And now we come to famous last words. Today they come from a story on F1i.com regarding Nick DeFries being dropped by Alpha Tori. This is what they say, and I quote, 
there's hard-headed ruthlessness in sport and then there's single-minded sociopathic carnage for the sake of it and coat i say buddha bless dr marco he sure has made his mark in the world of formal eins auto renin and finally sir we come to musical mondial it's a brand new year and what better way to celebrate than take a trip to paris with signor gato barbieri of argentina and a little of his last tango thank you for listening and please enjoy thank you good night bye bye